0: cannot meet the living God and not be affected on some level on an emotional, spiritual, physical level. Things change. The Holy Spirit comes in. It's not just an intellectual exercise. When the mind is truly renewed, it impacts the heart and it changes the face. This is what we're learning here to taste and see that the Lord is good. The results of seeking him in verse 4 are he answers us, he delivers us.
1: Psalm 34 begins with these words, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. It's a wonderful Psalm filled with great confidence in a great God. Welcome to Live in the Light. And as we continue on in our series on the life of David, we turn to this amazing song and we look more closely at the dependence of David upon his God in the middle of a crisis it's a great word for us also as we honestly look at our lives and ask this question what does it look like for me to depend upon god we're aiming for the dependent life here today on live in the light let's turn things over to our teacher pastor robbie simons with today's message
0: notice here seeking looking tasting Well, the Bible's telling us right here dependence loved ones dependence on some level is to be felt This is supposed to be a encounter with the living God. When the Holy Spirit moves us, I mean, you cannot truly encounter God and remain unmoved. You cannot meet the living God and not be affected on some level, on an emotional, spiritual, physical level. Things change. The Holy Spirit comes in. It's not just an intellectual exercise. When the mind is truly renewed, it impacts the heart and it changes the face. This is what we're learning here to taste and see that the Lord is good. The results of seeking him in verse four are, he answers us, he delivers us. Notice in verse four, David reveals that he also has fears. Good, we're encouraged by that. Because we have fears too. But notice David's solution to his fear. His solution is dependence. Oh, we must seek the Lord as a church. Oh, we must show the Lord we depend upon him. How do we show the Lord we depend on? Well, we we seek him. Notice again, if we seek him, it's here that we look to him. And the verse five says, as we look to him, then we become radiant, never to be ashamed. I, I love this verse too. Those who look to him are radiant, The beauty, the supernatural beauty of the Lord upon the faces of his children. Oh, the time, the energy, and the money that we spend in trying to look physically attractive in the temporal and the external. Our world is absolutely obsessed with this. The Lord creates a beauty by causing his children to become radiant that the world can't even touch. Those who look to the Lord are radiant. To become radiant means to shine. It means to beam. It means to become bright. This is why I live to see people saved in Jesus Christ. How many, I I could walk around this room right now and I could pick out dozens and dozens of people that I literally saw you before Christ and you were just dead. You were spiritually dead. So often you can just see it on people's faces. There's just no light. There's There's just no radiance because it's a supernatural thing. You can't fake this. You can't put enough makeup on to start to look radiant, okay? It's a supernatural thing. But I see you before Christ and then to see you The Lord Jesus Christ intervenes. You are radically transformed. The Bible says you are born again. You are regenerated. The Bible says that you become a new creation. The Bible says you were dead, but now you are alive. The Bible says now the Holy Spirit lives within you. You will never, ever die again. The Bible says you now are radiant and your face will never, ever be ashamed. Man, when you see that, you look at that person and you're just like, you just look different. Like you flat out look different because how do you not convey the reality that you were dead and now you're alive and the face of the individual shows it? It is awesome. The light in the eyes, the smile in the face. I'm not talking about never having hard days, it's talking about the reality of being born again in Jesus Christ. It is oh so beautiful. So radiance in verse five is a symbol of joy, a symbol of joy that is seen the person looking to Christ. And I love this promise in verse five. Take a look. It says their faces shall never be ashamed. Now think of The accused outside the courtroom, you know those scenes? And they're coming out of the courtroom and the uh, coats are over their faces and they don't want to be seen. The cameras are trying, they sit in the car and all the cameras are trying to click and they're covering their faces and, and anything to let their face be shown because of the shame they feel of the crime they're being accused of or the crime that they've committed. Anything but their faces to be ashamed and everyone is trying to expose them for who they really are. Listen, listen, that will never ever happen to the child of God. That will never happen. If you are genuinely saved in Jesus Christ, your face will never, ever be ashamed. It doesn't matter what the world does. It doesn't matter what Satan says. It doesn't matter what our friends or people around us say. If you are in Jesus Christ, the promise is, your face will never, ever be ashamed. That is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is a truth to take home right now, put in your spiritual pocket, and take out every day when the voices come and the accusations are heard. I have looked to the Lord and I am radiant and my face will never, ever be ashamed. No shame, loved ones, no shame. Who's that for today? No shame in Jesus Christ ever. He took it all. Jesus took it all. That's why I love seeing songs like we sing here, Jesus, son of God. He took our sin. He bore our shame. He rose to life. He defeated the grave. And a love like this, and then it goes back, and then it goes back into the verse again. And he took our sin and he bore, and it kind of builds in the song. I'm like, he took our, bore our shame. I'm, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking back to my past. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm thinking to my present, all my, sh- all my, sh- like the, the horrific, horrific thoughts and actions and words, like horrific. And all my shame is on Christ. And he took my sin and he bore my shame and he rose to life. And he defeated the grave. What a love. What a love. And I can stand the promise right now that I will never, ever experience the shame of judgment or condemnation from my God ever all because of what Christ has done. No wonder then David says in verse eight, look at verse eight. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Yeah, you better believe it. What could be better? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. You know, that is why, that truth right there, that is why some of us right now are here and discouraged and depressed. They're like, what? what are you talking about? Where'd you get that from? We're talking about all this joy of being tasted the Lord. No, no, listen, listen. If you truly tasted and seen that the Lord is good, anything less than that will leave you miserable. If you've genuinely tasted the meal of the Lord Jesus Christ and you have experienced and encountered how satisfying he is, if you fall, this is what's happening every day. The world's trying to pull us back into its devices, its idolatry, its emptiness, and its misery. Some of you are here right now and you are miserable, you are discouraged, and you are depressed because ultimately you have tasted the meal legitimately. You have left that table. You are feeding on the scraps of destruction and emptiness. And until you return to the banquet table of Jesus Christ, you will remain dissatisfied, miserable, discouraged, and on the verge of depression. Because there's nothing and no one that comes close to the satisfaction and the beauty and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and the meal that he provides for his children every single day. Until you reacquaint yourself with the Lord, you will still feel bankrupt. And that's why the Lord disciplines those he loves because he wants to bring us back to the table that we might feast. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. We seek him, we look to him, we taste him, we depend on him. And this takes us to point number three. What does dependence look like? It's a heart that fears the Lord. It's a heart that fears the Lord. Look at verse nine. Verse nine says, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Then verse 10, the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. I can't read verse 10 without thinking of the song that my kids have always sung in the car. I wonder if anyone, you know it. The lions may go weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. No, no, all right, all right, just me. So yeah, I have a hard time. Look at, look at, look at, look at verse 11. Come, old children, listen to me, and I will teach you, notice the fear of the Lord. This makes sense. You magnify the Lord, you seek the Lord. Naturally, the fear of the Lord then comes. Why? This is dependence. Dependence is built in the fear. What is the fear of the Lord? Two words, reverential awe. It's a profound sense of awe and wonder toward God. It's to hold him in sober reverence. Psalm, or Proverbs 19 says, the fear of the Lord leads to life and those who have it are satisfied. Notice within our verses that with the fear of God comes the favor of God. God. Our text says, the fear of the God for those who have no lack. Those who fear the Lord, they lack no good thing. Now, why is that true? Because fundamentally, when you know you have the Lord, there's nothing else that you need. Think about it. When you are filled with the presence of the Lord, when you are lost in worship of his glory and his splendor, when you are overcome with his grace and the power of the gospel, and you are shedding tears of brokenness over the fact that your perfect savior has saved a wretched sinner like you, it's amazing. When you're filled with the presence of the Lord, you are not thinking about your next vacation. You are not thinking about your bank account balance. You are not thinking about anything on this earth because when you are filled with the presence of God, you are again feasting on the meal that is all sufficient, total perfection and eternally satisfying. And so when that is your meal, you're not wondering what else is on the menu. You don't care because you have it all. And this is what the fear of the Lord does. You are so filled with awe of him and he is so satisfying. And he is then nothing else matters. Where does that come from? Dependence. Dependence, day by day, fighting the battle, doing the journey, seeking the Lord, fearing the Lord, tasting the Lord, magnifying the Lord. I just can't pass by this. Look Look at verse seven. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. And delivers them. So one more thing that the fear of the Lord does, it protects us. It's a great story from a woman named named Darlene Rose. She writes of her experiences following the Japanese invasion of New Guinea in World War II. When the Japanese invaded, her husband was dragged away. She never saw him again. She was left with another woman in a, a rat infested house just outside the jungle. The Japanese troops were everywhere and they were, Also, ruthless bandits that were taking advantage of the situation. One night, she thought she heard several rats. She went to get rid of them. As she went down the hallway of the house, in the dim light of a little lamp, she saw someone swish past her, stepping out for a better look. She found herself face to face with a bogus bandit. He was wearing a black sarong that he flung over his shoulder to free his machete. And with one fluid movement, the knife was extracted from his belt and held it up ready to strike her. On impulse, Darlene rushed at him and the man without explanation turned and ran down the hall through the bathroom across the porch into the streets with Darlene hot on his heels. Other bandits appeared, but they also fled. Darlene then stopped dead in her tracks and whispered, Lord, what a stupid thing for me to do. Instantly, a verse flashed into her mind. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. From that night on, Darlene slept with the club at the foot of her bed, but she never had to use it. She had suspected that the gardener was one of the culprits after the war. And she asked him if it was so, he was. She then asked him why they never entered the house again. And he answered with amazement, it was because of those people you had there, those people in white who stood about the house. And Darlene ended with, the Lord has put angels around us and he has delivered us. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. O oh, loved ones that we would depend upon him. A life that magnifies the Lord, seeks the Lord, fears the Lord. Fourthly, this, it's a, it's a voice that cries out to the Lord. It's a voice that cries out to the Lord. Look now at verse 15. Notice, uh, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. So notice this, the eyes of the Lord looking and the ears of the Lord listening. For who? For those who depend on him. Are we depending on him? Because the eyes of the Lord are looking. And the ears of the Lord are listening, looking for those and listening for those who depend on him. Verse 16, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. How can we depend on God if we do not call out to God? How can we say we depend on the Lord if we do not cry out to him specifically in prayer? You know, I've often said around here that um, a prayerless life, whether you mean to say it or not, you are indicating to God, I don't need you. A life that doesn't pray is a life that says, I'm independent, I'm self-sufficient, I'm self-reliant, I can do this. Whether you mean to say that or not, marriages, families, leaders, small groups, churches, whatever, bosses, employees, the prayerless life, whether you mean to say it or not, is a life that's saying, I don't need you God. See, this is when our theology, I'd be hard pressed to walk around this room right now, have a microphone and say, do you believe in prayer? Do you believe in prayer? Do you believe in prayer? I mean, virtually every person under the peer pressure itself, but even if you were by yourself, do you believe in prayer? Virtually every person would say, yeah, I believe in prayer. Well, does our theology lead to our practice then? Because if we believe prayer matters and prayer works and we must cry out to God, well, then we do it because it's an indication of our neediness that apart from Jesus Christ, we can do nothing. What John Dickerson says, he says this, We proclaim self-dependence rather than God-dependence, how, how? In our schedules and in our time devoted to human effort that are unprayed. So he says, as we walk through life, we are proclaiming self-dependence through all our activity that goes unprayed over. So we continue to operate in our own strength in the flesh, all the things that we are doing. And when we never um, choose to pray, we are declaring that we can do it. And God, again, we don't need you. So we're proclaiming self-dependence. God, forgive us for living lives that say so often we don't need you. God, forgive your church by declaring through an absence of prayer that it doesn't need you. But here's where verse 18 is. It's so fitting. The Lord is near to the broken heart and save the crushed in spirit. And I pray that we are broken over this. I pray that we are crushed over this reality. You know, loved ones, as long as our activity is of us, we will fail. But when our activity is of God, then nothing nothing will stop us. I just wanna take this moment right now and maybe you just heard enough to join with me and I'm gonna put these sentences of repentance on the screen here. And I wanna pray this is, this, is, this is real. And that we would just look at our lives right now and maybe we would see prayerlessness more than we'd like to admit. And so repentance is so powerful because it ushers in the grace of God quicker than anything else we can do. When it's real, when it's sincere, and when it's genuine. And we just say to the Lord, we just say to the Lord, like our church right now, um, God, we repent of our self-sufficiency. We repent of our self-reliance. Father, forgive us for we have sinned. We repent of our, our self-righteousness. Father, we repent of our, of our self-glory, always making it about our, us. Father, maybe just as a, as a church right now united together over this weekend, we repent of our, our prayerlessness. We have deceived ourselves, Lord, into thinking that we are something that we are not. But we pray, God, as we are sincerely desiring to repent of this, that you would usher in an, an awakening and a renewal and a forgiveness and a grace that would cause us to see just how much we need you. God, help us to be a church that prays. So this is where our theology must become our practice. And some of you are like, man, I know what, I'm afraid to come to a prayer meeting because I don't even know how to pray. I would just encourage you, you take the step of faith to respond to the command of the Lord and you show up, and no one's gonna force you to do anything in public, and you can sit there silently, you be in a group and you can just say, you, know, you just show up by faith to say, I do believe in prayer and I want to grow in this. If you continue to choose to not do it week after week, month after month, year after year, and you gotta stand before the Lord at the end of your time, and he's like, you didn't pray. He's <laughs> like, I'm pretty big God. I like to answer the prayers of my. But what are we gonna do? Now's the time, loved ones. Suck it up, right? Suck it up with faith and say, I do believe in prayer, and God will use it. A dependent life magnifies the Lord, seeks the Lord, fears the Lord. A voice that cries out to the Lord, and finally, this—it's a soul that takes refuge in the Lord. A soul that takes refuge. In the Lord. Look at verse nineteen. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And then verse twenty-two. This is this is beautiful. The Lord redeems the life of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Notice the Lord redeems the life of his servants. And none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Now, now, there's only one loved ones who can redeem us, reconcile us, make us righteous, and then rescue us. There's only one who can do this for us. This is the one we take refuge in him. Let me just unpack for us um, the reality of the atonement, okay? I want you to see this. This is why we make the Lord our refuge because no one else can do this for us. What does Christ do for us on the cross, okay? There's a whole bunch of R's here. They're awesome theological terms. One, he redeems us. What does that mean? He purchased us out of slavery. So we were enslaved to sin, but now because of Jesus Christ, we are redeemed. We are set free. We are set free by the gospel. That's a great spot for an amen. All right, all right. We get more, more now Through the cross, he's our refuge because when Christ is our refuge, we have been reconciled now to the father, which means we were alienated. We were enemies of God, Romans 5. But because God loved us and because his son died for us, we've gone from enemies of God if we've received the gift of eternal life and we are now back in fellowship with the Father, the curtain torn from top to bottom, and we are now friends of God, reunited with the Father, all because of what Jesus Christ has done. And that's a great spot for? Amen, Amen. all right. And then because of the cross of Jesus Christ, we are now made righteous. We were sin. And just think about that. Before Christ, we're sin. That we stand before the Father in judgment. He's like sin doesn't get into heaven. He's I'm holy. I cannot permit sin to get into heaven. Otherwise, I would go against my character. And because you are sin have judgment but in christ the righteousness of christ goes from him to us our sin goes on jesus christ we now stand before the father in judgment and he sees the righteousness of his son and he says you are declared innocent you are justified you are free you gain access into glory forever and ever that is so awesome this is why he's our refuge because we were sinned but now we're justified we're made innocent great spot for, amen and then we were rescued we were rescued so we were dead, but now because of Jesus Christ, when he's raised from the dead, that you too might have newness of life, Romans 6. We now have been made alive and we will never, ever, ever die. And all that the father has given to me, Jesus says, I will never lose not one. They will never, ever be cast out. They are guaranteed eternal life to be with me. I prepare a place for you, the mansions of glory that awaits you all because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, oh, you wanna say amen? Yeah. Amen, amen, amen. Now, listen, listen, listen. Look at the promises right here. There is nothing else in the world that can even come close to promising you anything of this. No money, no house, no job, no relationship, no one, nothing ever. No one can come even close to giving you anything that resembles any of this ever. And yet all the things we take refuge in apart from Jesus Christ, forgive us God. He alone is our refuge. There's only one person that can create this and promise this for us. No wonder then, None of those who take refuge in the Lord will be condemned because that's the power of the gospel. And this is the reality of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, a hymn that has meant so much to me in the last couple of months, in fact, the last couple of years, a hymn that's meant so much to me is it's called Rock of Ages. Many of you will know it. I just want to walk us through this hymn. You can put that on the screen right now. And this is written by Augustus Toplady. And this is, this is so, man, certain hymns, they just get it. Rock of Ages is everlasting rock. It's Darby's translation from Isaiah. Everlasting rock, everlasting God, cleft for me. Now, a cleft, as many of us know, is it's like a hole in a rock. It's an overarching kind of shelter of a rock where like a, a bird will nest in a, in, a, in, a, in a cleft. It's imagery used all over scripture, hundreds of places, shelter, fortress, cleft, rock, refuge, and you imagine Jesus Christ in the everlasting rock has a cleft, a roof that we go hide in where we are protected from the storms. We are sheltered. We will never be hurt. We will, we, will, we will never be lost. We will be with him under the cleft of this rock. Rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Colossians 3 verse three, my life is hidden with Christ. Because Christ has purchased me, I am hidden now. Satan can't get me. I am eternally secure. I will forever be his. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from Thy wounded side, which flowed, the cross, be of sin, the double cure. Now, the double cure, Toply is referring to here. He explains in this next line, the double cure of the cross and the atonement is, not only am I saved from the wrath of God, when Jesus Christ saves me, he becomes my propitiation which means the wrath of God goes from me onto Christ. That's why he's so much agony on the cross in the garden. He's agonizing over the punishment of God's wrath. That's the first part, saved from wrath, but it doesn't stop there. The cross also makes me pure. So the double cure is I'm saved by God's wrath, but I'm also made righteous by Jesus Christ. Awesome, awesome. And that's just the first verse. Here's the next one, okay? It says this, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy laws demands. Maybe you've walked in here today and you think, well, I'm a good person, so I'm getting into heaven. Well, the problem with that is, again, no sin gets into heaven, not even one. Have you sinned once in your entire life ever? The answer is yes, you've sinned thousands and millions of times, to be honest. Just ask your spouse or someone who knows you well, all right? all right. So you're coming, well, no, I'm gonna go for God and say, well, I, I, I did good deeds. The problem with that, there's no labor you can do to gain access to God, ever, ever. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill that because the law demands perfection, What the law does, the Bible says, it's a mirror. And it shows us that we're not perfect. Just go through the 10 commandments and you hold up as a mirror to your life and you hold the mirror and you're like, ah! Because you're seeing all the sinfulness and the reality of who you're not. Could my zeal, no respite, no? Could I be as passionate as possible without rest for the rest of my life, pleading before God? Could my tears forever flow, begging God, weeping at his throne, let me in, let me in, let me in. All for sin could not atone. None of this will ever atone for my sin. Why? Because thou must save and thou alone. Next verse. Nothing in my hand I bring. I love this. Simply to the cross I cling. I... I got nothing. I got nothing. I'm a wretched sinner. Naked come to thee for dress. Revelation 3. You don't realize you were naked, poor, pitiable. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Wonderful imagery here. I got nothing. Just begging God for grace. Foul, a stench. Wretched, a foul. I chew the fountain, though the fountain fly. And this is one of my favorite lines. And I've said this, sung this many times with tears in my eyes. Wash me, Savior, or I die. If you don't wash me, Jesus Christ, nothing will. Wash me, Savior. Maybe you're here right now and you, this is your line today. And you cry out to Jesus Christ through faith and grace, wash me, Savior, or I die. And then the next verse, and every great hymn has a last verse of eschatology, right? Eschatology is last things. While I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyes shall close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown, See thee on thy judgment throne, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. And then rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee because there's there's no one else to seek refuge in. There's no one else. Rock of ages, the everlasting eternal rock. You're my cleft, you're my refuge. God, I choose today independence to hide myself in you because you're the only
1: one that I live for. If you'd like to hear this message again or the rest of the messages from this series, you can find these free resources and more on our website at liveinthelight.ca. That's liveinthelight.ca. If you'd like to get a copy of the entire series, make sure you phone us at 1-844-22-LIGHT. That's 1-844-225-4448. I'm Craig Turnbull, and on behalf of Robbie Simons, we invite you to join us again next time on Live in the Light.